is White Sox Weekly, your all-access pass to everything White Sox. That baby will go! Lance Lynn with an absolute gem. Deep right! It is gone! It's a no-hitter! Carlos Rodon! What a performance! Now here's your host, Connor McKnight. New Year's Eve to all. This is White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000. Connor McKnight's got the week off. Tyler Rocky in. Connor will be back next week. Looking forward to hearing him back here on the show. On this New Year's Eve, we are going to be looking back at some of the best moments from the White Sox season in 2022. Also, we'll talk with James Fegan from The Athletic as well. Get you the latest insights on what's happening with the White Sox this offseason. Are they done for the offseason? And what does the outlook look like for 2023 for this White Sox team looking to get back into the postseason after making it in two of the past three years? So you can follow us on Twitter at ESPN White Sox. We give you all these great White Sox updates all season long. And that's kind of where I I channeled. It's sometimes tough when you're looking back and trying to pick out five of the best moments from a season. And because there's so many, even though the White Sox didn't deliver at the the level that a lot of White Sox fans would have wanted for this year, that doesn't mean there's not a sprinkling of greatness. Even teams like that that are like the Oakland A's, they still have moments of greatness over the course of their seasons, even if they don't finish within like 20 games uh, uh, under 500. So I went through and I found the five moments that were my five favorite from this White Sox season. So we'll count them down for you here. This one, let's go back to August 20th, shall we? And that is the White Sox uh, doing battle. It was the it was a Johnny Cueto start. And Johnny Cueto, I mean, talk about one of the biggest revelations for the White Sox this season. It was Johnny Cueto and the way that he really solidified what at the time was supposed to be the number five spot in the rotation. And boy, did he turn it into a lot more than the number five spot. I mean, if the White Sox had gotten into the playoffs, you could have made the case for Johnny Cueto to be the second or third starter in that rotation uh, in a playoff series. But August 20th, Johnny Cueto goes eight and two thirds against the Cleveland Guardians right in the thick of the playoff race. He blanks them two nothing, eight and two thirds shutout innings. Nearly has the the complete game shutout. He does ultimately get pulled. Only had two strikeouts in this game, and I think part of what made Johnny Cueto great last season at times was his ability to overwhelm teams without striking them out. Some of his best starts. I mean, you look at he had four starts this past season where he went at least eight innings. We don't see starters go eight innings anymore in the modern era, but in those starts, he had two strikeouts, five strikeouts, four strikeouts, and three strikeouts in those four starts. Uh, Another one of them coming against Houston as well in what was a a pivotal win to help the White Sox uh, win that series against the Astros. But Cueto was fantastic all season long, and, and this is what it sounded like here on ESPN 1000 when he sla- when the White Sox slammed the door against Cleveland for the 2-0 victory. Hendricks leans in. He's got the sign. And the 2-2. Swing and a miss. Strike three on a slider. Hendricks gets the save. Johnny Cueto with a hug from his manager. 
The White Sox win two to nothing. Partner, that was old school stuff tonight. Yeah, that was fun baseball to watch for the White Sox all around. Everybody really played this game clean. They really picked each other up. And nice job by Liam sticking with that discipline of saying, you know what, he's a kid. Two he laid off of, three I bet he can't, and he put him away. Chance for a series win tomorrow early. The final, White Sox two, Guardians nothing. So that was a gem, probably the best start we saw out of Cueto all season long. He was just the workhorse for this team. You would have never thought he would have been one of the leaders on this team in innings, but when it was all said and done, that's exactly what the White Sox got from Johnny Cueto. All right, moment number four that stuck out to me. This was not one, but two walk-offs that the White Sox had against the Twins. Ground ball, off the glove of Lopez. Sox win! Sox win! Cue the fireworks again. So you heard Len Casper there on the call, courtesy of NBC Sports Chicago there. Cue the fireworks again. Why again? Well, in this 4-3 win against the Minnesota Twins, remember, Jose Abreu was hit on the hand with the bases loaded. That would have ultimately brought home the winning run. Upon further review, they went back and saw, oh, Jose actually was not hit, albeit it did look pretty close. I think some would argue he was hit on that hand. Regardless, he got his revenge on the next very next play. Ricochets a ground ball up the middle, gets through the infield, and the White Sox win it. That was also a crazy game, too, because remember, the White Sox in that ninth inning... They get back-to-back singles and then a walk mixed in there as well. And um, Andrew Vaughn catches a ball that's up and in. And that leads to a benches-clearing skirmish between both the White Sox and Twins, but ultimately got Miguel Cairo ejected. And I think what it ultimately did, too, was when that ball was up and in, I remember Lance Lynn jumps out of the dugout. And Lance, maybe not the nimblest of guys, but... I the way that he hurtled his way over the dugout railing to kind of start this little uh not a brawl but more of a, a gathering at, that led to some heated moments um between both the White Sox and the Twins. I think it really shook the Twins closer Jorge Lopez at the time and that's why he misfired on on the next batter with with Jose Abreu and ultimately hit him and or did not hit him but went up and in and ultimately loses control of that inning. And I think Lance Lynn deserves a lot of credit in that walk-off win, despite the fact that he did not throw a single pitch in that game against the Twins. But that is my moment number four for the best White Sox moments of 2022. We're recapping them all here on White Sox Weekly. This was number three. That is... Drives one deep to right. This one's going to go. Absolutely blasted by Aloy Jimenez. Home run in back-to-back nights for Aloy. First run for the White Sox tonight. Here's the 1-1 to Vaughn. Ground ball up the middle and through. Garcia's being waved around third. He will score easily. Andrew Vaughn comes through with a two-out RBI knock. It's 3-2. So and one against Puck. Tying runs in second. Here's the pitch. Shot in the left. It's down. McEwing waves him around third. The play 
This is down in the corner. Sox take the lead. Zavala scores. Romy home. Elvis Andrews in the place he used to play. Gives the White Sox a 5-3 lead in the night. And Elvis is in the building. Kick in the first to Langoliers. It's a ground ball to short. Andrews up with it. Romy the turn and the White Sox win it. Liam Hendricks throws a double play ball and the White Sox come back from being no hit through six and down 3-0 in the ninth. They score five and earn the win. That was the comeback of the year for the White Sox. You heard Connor McKnight lay it out beautifully there in that little montage, but they got contributions up and down the lineup for that five-run ninth inning that gave the White Sox a pivotal uh, win late in the season when they were still fighting for their playoff lives. And that five-run comeback there really kind of lit a spark for this team. It was a lot of fun to see this team in that sort of fashion and Elvis Andrews doing a lot of what Elvis Andrews did down the stretch too with that big home run. Um, but you saw contributions all over. Aloy, Romy Gonzalez had the big hit that ultimately tied the game. And then it was Andrews, the one that, that put them over the top. But resilient effort there. It looked like the Sox were, were dead to rights in that game. And I think it would have been a real momentum swing late in the season there. But they go out and pick up the victory in a thriller. All right. This was moment number two for me. I was actually in attendance at this game. Caught my first foul ball ever as well. Um, this was against the the Astros. This was one of the most built-up regular season games that I can remember. And it was Dylan Cease going up against Justin Verlander. The two went back and forth. Neither of them had their sharpest of stuff, but both were good enough to warrant the ticket to go see both of them. And the White Sox down late in the game. They mount a little bit of a comeback, and it's all tied at three in the bottom of the eighth. Here's the pitch. Swing and a bloop in the center for a base hit. Engel scores. Moncada gets it done again, and it's 4-3. to three. The 1-2, swing, and a miss, strike three. The White Sox beat the Astros. The final score, Sox 4, Astros 3. They're a game out of first place. That was a big victory for the White Sox, and part of taking two of three, from that Houston team. It was a lot of fun to be in the ballpark for that one. Absolutely electric atmosphere. I remember taking the train into work that day and on the CTA, you saw uh, like those digital billboards and you saw it was the two marquee matchup guys. It was Cease versus Verlander. They were advertising it like it was a heavyweight fight when it was a battle between the two pitchers that ended up being one and two in the Cy Young race. And it was a lot of, a lot of fun to be in the ballpark for that one, especially with the comeback that they put on as well at the end of the game to send White Sox fans home happy. So that was certainly one of the best moments of the season. And this takes the cake. I think it's not too hard to, to shy away from this one, but this was the most dominant outing we saw from any White Sox player all season long. Two down and it'll be Cease. Versus Arise. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> this, I mean, if you're ever going to earn a no-hitter, 
why not make it the league's leading batter that you have to beat? I agree. To be the best, you've got to beat the best. And so far, Dylan has kept him to an 0-3. 13-0, two outs, ninth inning. The 1-1 serve. Swinging a base hit out into right center. A rise breaks up the no-no. And Dylan just put his hands on his knees. That was a solid base hit. And he gets a standing ovation, and Ethan Katz will walk out, and they'll talk it over. What a performance. So while that does sound like a low light, it really was one of the highlights of the season, seeing that entirety of the Dylan Cease performance. Nine shutout innings against the Twins in a 13-0 victory, struck out seven, walked two, just allowed the one hit there to arise. It was the dominant Dylan Cease that we saw all season long from the White Sox, and, and a reason why he finished second in the Cy Young voting and certainly is going to be one of the favorites, especially now that Justin Verlander no longer in the American League anymore. So Dylan Cease would not shock me to see him as the odds on favorite to win the Cy Young in the AL for 2023. But that was quite the roller coaster to kind of go through there. All of those games too sort of happened in like a month span as well. You're looking at, I think the, the earliest one was August 16th and the latest one was September 9th. So you got a month, about a month there of action packed highlights from the White Sox and Dylan Cease with the no hitter or with the near no hitter, one out away from no hitting the Minnesota Twins. That to me, the number one moment in all of White Sox baseball this season. When we come back, I want to collaborate a little bit with Charlie Bevins here. And it's kind of based off of a conversation I heard with Carmen DeFalco and, and Sylvie here on our flagship ESPN 1000 talking about the best athletes in Chicago in 2022. And I want to talk a little bit about Dylan Cease. Was he the best and most dominant athlete in the city in 2022, Charlie and I will discuss that when we come back. It's White Sox Weekly here on ESPN 1000. Chicago's home for sports is the home of the White Sox. This is White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000. We are talking White Sox. This is White Sox Weekly. If you miss the show, we put the podcast up on the ESPN Chicago app. So listen on your time. White, White Sox, Sox Weekly, ESPN 1000. Chicago's home for sports. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly and Happy New Year's Eve to all. Looking to ring in 2023. Hope everyone has a safe and healthy new year. Tyler Rocky in for Connor McKnight. Connor will be back next week to talk all things White Sox and give you his observations of what's taken place over the last month um, here with White Sox baseball, free agency, the offseason, and also the outlook for what's to come in 2023. So we've got Charlie Bevins with us here producing today on White Sox Weekly. And Charlie, you were a part of this conversation that took place uh, on Thursday with Sylvie and Carmen DeFalco here on ESPN 1000 and Sylvie had the homework assignment of the 10 best athletes in Chicago sports in 2022 and it got me thinking where does Dylan Cease rank on that list now Sylvie had Justin Fields at number one Carmen 
had Dylan Cease as his number one. And I actually agree with Carm. I do think Cease was the most dominant athlete in 2022. Now, I know their list differed a little bit. If you're talking about the best story to come out of 2022, I think it's all hands down, no doubt in my mind, Justin Fields, because of what he has meant to the Bears franchise and the quarterback position meaning so much and and just the magnitude of what it holds in all of sports. But if we're talking about the most dominant athlete of 2022 in Chicago sports, I've got Dylan Cease, 14-8 and with a 2.2 ERA, finished second in Cy Young voting, also got a few MVP votes as well. Um, I just look at what he did and like the Cy Young being the MVP of pitchers, that to me told me everything I needed to know. He was second. He was the second best pitcher in all of baseball. Um, when you look at the crop of players that you could really pick from in Chicago for the most dominant athlete, it's between Cease, Fields, and DeMar DeRozan. Now, the one little thing that I think you have a case for as to why it may not be Cease is he wasn't an all-star, but I think everyone knows he was an all-star in 2022. Yeah, and you're right. We all had the same top three uh, just in various orders of Cease, uh, DeMar DeRozan, and Justin Fields. I, I, I kind of approached it the same way as Sylvie did from a narrative story perspective. But you're right. If we're going by truly dominant athletes, it was I, I, it's kind of hard for me to even consider anybody else if we're just going purely by dominance. I mean, there's no, we've seen it a couple times in this city now. Like we saw it with Giolito a couple years ago. When you're riding that, like just as a viewer, and you're riding that wave of a dominant pitcher, and you know that every single game they're starting in, it's must-see TV, and you automatically have an advantage because of who you have on the mound, there's truly nothing like it. And that's that's what we all got to experience watching Dylan Cease. And we'd kind of seen this coming before, you know, we kind of seen something like this developing. Like he's always had such great stuff and then he finally put it all together this year. And it was really special to watch. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about three guys, too, with Fields, DeRozan and, and Cease, all guys that took significant leaps to like we and maybe the the leap not as great for DeRozan because we've seen him be an all star before. He's been a top level player in the NBA, he's made NBA all NBA teams before as well. So, but he kind of found a new gear to become that alpha on the Bulls. Fields is the greatest revelation because of a city that's so starved for quarterbacks. Um, but then you got Cease and the jump that he took from last year to this year to be able to go toe to toe with any pitcher in all of baseball to be dubbed the the best. That, to me, showed everything that I needed to see and why he was the most dominant to me. Because, I mean, you saw how filthy his stuff was. We talked a little bit about the uh, the top moments. How many of those top moments featured Dylan Cease, too? Um, my, my, the top two, in my opinion, both featured Dylan Cease. The marquee start he had against Justin Verlander between two Cy Young candidates. And then the, the near no-hitter, where he goes eight and two-thirds. And nearly blanks the, uh, the Minnesota Twins in that game too. It was just night in and night out. He, you could always count on Dylan Cease. And for a White Sox team that underwhelmed, Dylan Cease was still always that guy that you locked in to see every single game in 2022. And there was all three of those guys have this electrifying 
quality to them. Yeah. Whether it be that crazy run of buzzer beaters DeMar had last year uh-huh. or the insane runs that Fields will pull off. It was the same thing with Cease where it's like, oh, my God, this guy has 13 strikeouts and we're six innings into this. Like, it's there's a certain spectacle element with him that and, and with the, all those guys at the top of that list that really I, it's it, it's kind of um, it, it was just so thrilling to watch and to just see happen and to be a part of is, you know, we're working here. Right. Uh, it, mm-hmm. It's it was really kind of a, a magical season in a lot of ways for him because you're right. He did kind of check off all those boxes where he came really close to a no hitter. He was an all-star despite not being one in name, but he was one of the best pitchers in the AL by the time that voting came around. And, you know, second in Cy Young. Like, that's that's kind of all you need to tell me with it. So I look at it, too. Like, it's kind of tough, and I get it's kind of the nature of baseball where you don't have quote-unquote Heisman moments, right? Like, you brought up DeMar, and he's got the the buzzer beaters that you roll the highlight reel, and it's it's... A, a miraculous play. Justin Fields, he has the long 40, 50, 60 yard runs, miraculous plays, right? But with Dylan Cease, you don't really have these quote unquote Heisman moments. They're Heisman games because pitching, you really don't have moments as much. You have drawn out success over the course of six, seven, eight innings, which we saw out of Cease quite frequently. I mean, you look at some of the teams that he was dominant against this year. Um, he had an 11 strikeout performance against Toronto, an 11 strikeout performance against the Yankees. That, by the way, came in just four innings too. He actually did get knocked around a little bit in that one, but did have 11 strikeouts in four innings. Um, he had 11 strikeouts against the Angels and 13 against Baltimore. You look at those four games right there, and you look at the lineups that he's going against. I mean, Toronto, Mash Unit, the Yankees, say less, the Angels, Otani and Trout. Um, and then Baltimore was this up and coming young team this year that surprised a lot of people. That was a really fun watch all season long. And then you even look at like some of the games where he's having nine and eight strikeouts, a, a good performance against Boston, a, a good performance against Tampa early in the season. Um, he, he was dominant against, uh, Cleveland a couple times this year. The Dodgers, he had an eight strikeout performance. Like it was fun to watch him game in and game out go up against some of the best and, Here's how you know you're a dominant must-watch pitcher is when you start, like if you're thinking about going to a game or like in our case, um, like for me, whenever I would fill in for, for pregame and postgame for Connor and he'd bump over to, to radio or TV, I was always mapping out, all right, how many days removed are we from a Dylan C start when we get to that day? And I always prayed it was five because I knew I would get Dylan C's that day, be able to talk about it, be able to watch it in person at Guaranteed Rate Field. It was the best. And watching him night in and night out, there were truly few players like him in all of Chicago sports this year, albeit a down year for Chicago sports this year when you look at the grand scheme of things. But he was one of the few bright spots when you're talking about athletes in the city. Yeah, and it's sort of it's sort of a culmination of a lot of tough decisions the White Sox had to make when they were building this thing up, like to know that you went through all of that and you came out on top with one of the best pitchers in the American League. And, and there's something, there's a, there's some, he instills so much confidence in yeah. you as a fan. And it, it's, it has to instill confidence in the locker room when you know he's out there. I mean, in the biggest games 
that he played in. You mentioned a few of them, like eight strikeouts against the Dodgers. In a day and age where a strikeout is so important when these teams are just mashing constantly, he's the way he pitches is so valuable. And it's it's really remarkable to watch his development over the last what three years now yeah it's it's been a real um like i said just kind of a, just a pleasure to watch him he had uh three earned runs or fewer in 27 of his 32 starts so you're giving your team a chance to win in 27 of your 32 starts and and again the offense doesn't always come around but when you've got that level of talent on the mound night in and night out and the filthy stuff that he had i mean that slider uh, the knuckle curve, it was it was a lot of fun to watch with Dylan Cease this year. But so much to get to with Dylan Cease down the road as well. He will certainly be in the thick of things for the Cy Young moving forward in 2023. And I'd imagine he'll be the odds-on favorite for this upcoming season. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk with James Fegan from The Athletic. Get his thoughts on what the White Sox have done in free agency so far, what's to come for this team, and what is the, the core? What, what is this core capable of accomplishing this upcoming season? All that coming up next with James Fegan from The Athletic right here on White Sox Weekly. This is White Sox Weekly. On the home of the White Sox. ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Follow Chicago's Home for Sports on Twitter at ESPN1000. Welcome to White Sox Weekly on ESPN1000. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly on ESPN1000. Tyler Rocky in for Connor McKnight on this New Year's Eve. White Sox looking to turn the page and have some more success in 2023. Let's check in now with James Fegan from The Athletic. You can find all of his work on TheAthletic.com. Does a fantastic job covering the White Sox. James, thanks so much for joining us here today, and Happy New Year to you. Uh, Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So you've been writing a lot. Uh, I was reading one of your, your articles, White Sox Resolutions for a Better, More Productive 2023 Season. And one of the things you led off with there was find out what the White Sox core is capable of. And obviously this core has changed from last season to this season when you lose kind of the heartbeat of your team in, in Jose Abreu, one of the biggest leaders in that locker room. But what do you think this White Sox core is ultimately capable of after what we've seen the last couple of seasons? Uh, well, ultimately my conclusion is that I don't know uh, because the year that, you know, it's been three seasons of being in win-now mode and, you know, the year where everybody's healthy or everybody seems like they're, um, you know, playing to their capabilities, you know, I, I think – uh, or the year where everyone, uh, you know, seems to be locked into their approach, um, you know, and it hasn't really happened. Uh, you know, even say even the second half of uh, 2021, you get, you know, Eloy Jimenez and Luis Robert back at the end of that year, but uh, you don't really have, you know, Jimenez really at full operational status. You see the pitching kind of wear down um, you know, because of coming off of the COVID season. They haven't had this year where it seemed like they really had their whole team in place and everybody was up and running the way they wanted to. Now, every team is going to have injuries. Every team is going to have guys having down years anytime. There's, there's no perfect season, but I feel like they've been in a unique spot where we haven't really seen um, what they can really do and what their real ceiling is. And I, I think when it's even been 
you know, 80% productive, it, it seemed to be a team that should win the AL Central. And that's why my ultimate conclusion is I think they will under this new coaching staff next season. But I think right now the organization is, is still trying on, to sell the idea that this group is capable of winning a championship. We haven't seen them get really close to that, but at the same time, there's a little bit of mystery. It's like, well, we don't really know if a great season from Yon Mankata, Eloy Menez, Luis Robert, Tim Anderson, you know, all happening at once really does have a team that has that capability. And uh, I think it gets hard to believe the longer it stretches on without having that opportunity, but I, I, they're still chasing at this point, I feel. So, with this team, obviously a lot of the core still intact. You do, as I mentioned, lose Jose Abreu, but there is some shuffling to where they are situated. And, and one of the big ones is Andrew Vaughn moving over to first base. How do you view Vaughn's fit over at first? And is it ultimately going to be something that helps the White Sox? Um, I think it should be very good for him. I think it might be a little hard to say, you know, he's going to be even better than a brave. I, I think there it's probably more, a more fair thing to Andrew would be like, well, this would be an opportunity to pass the torch on the idea that a brave, you know, you know, career and prime was going to end at some point and they needed to move on. Uh, but you know, the guy I saw in the first half of last season, even without as much power as he thought, you know, this is someone who hit the break, you know, batting 300 with, you know, a pretty comfortable, safe uh, on base percentage and, and even decent power. He, he was a, He's one of the better hitters in the American League, and if you know the the, the rationale behind moving the first is that you know a lot of his second half and a lot of struggles from his rookie season were were just kind of his legs wearing down because you're asking him to play a position uh, that you know is not native to him. I, I think it makes a lot of sense, and I think this is someone who um, you know throughout his amateur career, throughout you know his time coming up as a prospect, as short as it was. There wasn't really anyone who was ever claiming that he couldn't hit or that it wasn't going to work. And, and so I think we've seen that um, in the majors to some degree. And, and if he can just kind of have a full year where he's not being asked to do way more than you know what he should be uh, defensively and you know, on it, putting more work on his legs, I, I think it will work. I, I think asking him to do, just do a prime and Brady season is probably a bit much, but I, I definitely get the rationale behind let's let this guy play his natural position and see what he's capable of. Because the, the talent is there for him to be a very good starting first base in the American League. James Fegan with us from The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter, at J.R. Fegan. Um, so one of the other things that I'm, I'm really intrigued by this season is the addition of Andrew Benintendi. How surprised were you when you saw the news come across that Benintendi was signing with the White Sox? Um, well... Not that surprise in the sense that there was probably three days of smoke before it broke, the news broke that there was something like that was going down. A little surprise in terms of where we started out with the offseason and certainly what the team was signaling as far as what their budget was and even Han saying openly that they were probably going to make more noise and trades uh, than free agent signings. They wanted to make their, their biggest signing uh, in franchise history. Um, but not surprised also in the aspect of They've loved Andrew Benintendi forever. This is someone they wanted in the draft. Uh, you know, I want to say 2015. This is the Carson Fulmer draft, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, that he gets selected one pick ahead of them. This is someone they wanted in the Chris Sale trade. Uh, this is someone they were interested in even in the last deadline if things lined up a bit more. Like this, this is their player that they've been you know enamored with for so long that I, I know the White Sox view him and his potential. You know, still being 28. Uh, beyond just oh he was a you know 
hit for high average, but didn't have much power uh, last season. Let's just hope he can repeat that. This is a guy that they still think can be um, someone who hits for maybe average power, 10 to 15 home runs, and continues to, to hit for 300, get on base a lot, and plays good defense. So um, it, it's definitely a profile they've been seeking. It, it definitely fits their needs in a way that I thought made sense uh, for a while outside of the home run power part, just needing good left-handed uh, good left-handed bat and a good left-field defense. Um, all, 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 the only thing that really was surprising is whether they really had the wherewithal and they really had the desire to push it through and spend the money it needed to get this left fielder. And, you know, they wound up doing that at the end. It's not like a, a mega free agent. Um, but, you know, th- this is not money we see them hand out all the time. So it was a meaningful step for them to do it. So with Andrew Benintendi in the fold now, I mean, this is a guy who's probably going to give you in the neighborhood of 140 or so games, assuming all health's there. Um, but what does this mean for Aloy Jimenez? Have we seen the last of Aloy in left field? I would say no. Um, I think, you know, having him, you can say he's a DH, but, you know, realistically, you know, even just talking about Ben Attendee playing 140, it's not 162. Um, I don't think Oscar Colas is going to play 162. I, I think you're going to have uh, Jimenez still being the guy who can go out there at times. I think it'd probably be, you know, someone who comes to mind a little bit to me is Jordan Alvarez in the sense of how often he plays in left field for the Astros and how often he DHs. I think it'll probably be a tick below that. But, you know, if Eloy played 30 to 60 games in the field next season, that really wouldn't surprise me. And that would still require him to have it be something he regularly works at and trains at, but maybe is at a level where you're not, you know, straining him physically or asking him to be an every single day guy or having his bat being dependent on, you know, how sore he feels or how available he is to play the outfield. Last year was really big of showing how he was able to still be able to hit, still able to produce, even with his legs not feeling 100%. So I think it's still going to be a tool in his bag. I don't think he's just throwing his gloves away, but now you're no longer asking him to be an everyday defender and provide a lot of value there. James Feagan, our guest here on White Sox Weekly. Um, so what have you made overall of what the White Sox have done this offseason? Again, they, they bring in Clevenger. They bring in Andrew Benintendi, Gregory Santos, uh, a reliever as well. Um, you put in that, that piece of the, of the New Year's resolutions for the White Sox that the offseason isn't everything, but it certainly is a building block and something that White Sox fans were hoping there would be some action. There certainly has been some, but what do you make of the entirety of the offseason that we've seen so far? They've, they've done, they've filled the like obvious needs more or less. You know, I was someone of the mindset of if you took second base and left field and you, um, you know, you have limited budget for both, I would sooner go all in on a left fielder and kind of see what you can do internally, uh, second base rather than get an average guy for left field and an average guy for second base and split it up. So I was actually, knowing that it was probably going to be a limited foray in free agency, I thought that was the better path that they took to, to kind of do things that they've done so far. It doesn't mean they can't still trade or, or add a, maybe a lower cost second baseman, but I, I think their big outlay has already happened. They, they, they've kind of augmented this team the way they need to in the obvious fashion uh, of filling out a rotation spot and getting a left fielder. But fundamentally, their plan is to run it back, uh, of bringing the score back and saying if we can keep these guys healthy if we can, you know, change the coaching staff, change the approach, you know, sharpen up on defense that this is a good team. And, you know, I, I get the logic behind that. And I think 
you know, that team, I still feel the way I did about this team last spring, which is that they're the most talented team in the division and they, they should be able to win it. And, you know, obviously any chance you have in the playoffs gives you a real chance to make a run and, and some value. But I, I think there's probably some discontent about the idea that this was a team that was aiming when this whole rebuild started to be a dominant force in the league and be a perennial World Series contender. And I don't think that they had the sort of offseason that, makes you think that they put themselves in line with the, the Astros the Mets and Dodgers and all that. It's still a team that, you know, looks strong enough to get in the dance, but then needs a lot to happen to go right to, to really make a long run. And, and so I, I understand the discontent that that, that that bridge really hasn't happened with this offseason, and, and they're not really planning on, on making that happen via offseason moves. You brought up the, the new coaching staff here, Pedro Grifol, the new manager. You've got Charlie Montoya on the bench, Jose Castro, the new hitting coach. What's going to look different from an identity standpoint for this White Sox team with this new group as opposed to what we saw last year? I mean, as far as just what's going to look different, I think if you show up early, uh, you know, really early, maybe earlier than they actually let you in most days for batting practice for the White Sox, you're probably going to see them hitting off high-speed pitching machines that are simulating spin and simulating, you know, velocity and movement, or you're going to see them doing very focused, uh, you know, drills at close range on the infield defense uh, to, you know, work on game speed reaction times uh, more than you're just going to see very token traditional batting practice of soft tosses, or you're going to just see guys taking infield ground balls. Everything that Pedro Grafol has talked about and his staff has talked about is simulating the game speed that they're going to be facing and doing a lot more intense reps, maybe fewer overall, with the idea of, you know, traditional batting practice, the idea is just get loose, get your swing going, get in rhythm, and be ready, and then you'll adjust to what you're facing during the game. Whereas they're a lot more like you guys over this past season, especially with offense, especially with defense, didn't look prepared as much as you need to be on a nightly basis. So you're going to see exactly the level of intensity that you're going to see in the game. So I, I think visually, you know, White Sox infield practice, White Sox spring training, the drills that we see uh, in Arizona in February should look different, should look more intense at a higher speed if, if the coaching staff is, is going to carry out what they're talking about. Because they're talking about, uh, you know, working these guys at very intense um, levels um, throughout their practice reps. How does that sort of factor in now? Like you talk about the high intensity there of the, what practice and batting practice is going to look like. But remember last year we, we were told, too, that there were guys who were told not to go 100% to first base. Well, something Pedro has you know, said a lot is you know, higher intensity but less reps. You can't ask somebody to do 30, 50, maybe even 20 ground balls if you're asking them to go full speed the whole time. So it's going to be uh, a lot of going out there doing maybe 5, 10 reps and you know, if it looks right, being done with it and not pushing a guy beyond what he uh, can do physically. It's, it's going to be, you know, very focused cage sessions rather than doing five or six rounds of BP at, at low speed. Uh, so he, he's definitely talked a little bit about um, if you're going to demand more in practice, you can't practice for as long. So I, I think it's part of the consideration of it. Yeah. It, it remains to be seen that they can really, as, as much as it didn't seem like those health measures were effective that they employed last year of asking guys to go less, and it didn't seem to, um, raise the level of play overall. Um, they're they're going to have to show, you know, with the new performance coach they hired, uh, Jeff Head, that they got away from the Diamondbacks. They're going to have to show that they can balance this kind of demanding more precision in practice without actually wearing guys down and, and running to the same physical problems 
the keeping this group on the field that last team's had because it's been something that's really defined the last two seasons and, and why we don't really know what this core is capable of overall. James Fegan with us here on White Sox Weekly. So the two holes that I think White Sox fans now are, are centered in on, second base and right field. I think some White Sox fans were hopeful that maybe Gene Segura would be the guy that to play second base for the Sox this year. That obviously no longer a part of the picture after he joined the Marlins this past week. But do you think the ultimate plan at second base is internal, or could we see an external guy come in? I think there's been enough you know, trade talks about external options that I wouldn't say like just because nothing's happened uh, so far, they're going to go purely internal. I think it's maybe more likely than not it'd be internal at this point. And I also don't think that any external ad is going to be on the level of a Benintendi or a Clevenger where they just come in and it's guaranteed that they have a a full season starting spot. I I think it could be more smaller depth positions at this point, but yeah, I, I think at this point, they're definitely, you know, Romy Gonzalez is working out with the hitting coaches uh, in Miami uh, several times a week. So I, I think he's definitely of the mindset that he has the opportunity to win a job this next season. I think that their signaling in right field has been pretty clear for a couple of months now that um, if it's not Oscar Colas opening day, which I, I, you know, I think it very well could be, that it's very much like a setup for his job to take over over the course of the season. So I, I think they view that as a really economical way to clear the way for a prospect that they think can be a starting uh, starting level guy. and They're, they're not really going to put a lot in the way to, to block him at this point, um, given the limited resources. James, appreciate you spending some time with us here. Happy New Year. Have a safe and healthy New Year as well, and we look forward to seeing you at Guaranteed Rate Field this year. Looking forward to it as well. Thanks again. James Fegan from The Athletic does fantastic work there. You can find him, James Fegan, at theathletic.com. We'll wrap up White Sox Weekly when we return on ESPN 1000. This is White Sox Weekly on Chicago's home for sports. ESPN 1000. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly. Listen to Chicago's home for sports on the ESPN Chicago app, 100.3 HD2, and ESPN 1000. Now, on the home of the White Sox, here's Connor McKnight. Eve here on White Sox Weekly. Big thank you to Charlie Bevins for producing today's show. So we've been talking a little bit over the course of the last couple weeks about the the second base holes uh, or the second baseman. What's the future going to look like at second for this White Sox team? And you heard James Fegan not too long ago talk about there might be a move, there might be a trade that could pop up and flare up with this White Sox team in front office. Um. And that led me to to find an interesting article on The Athletic. And this is from Dennis Lynn of The Athletic saying, The Padres still need starting pitching. Could they trade Trent Grisham or Ha Sung Kim? Now, I don't know if the, the White Sox would be ones to be in the market to, to move a pitcher right now. But does that mean that maybe Ha Sung Kim could be available? And would that be a piece that could fit in at second base for the White Sox? So he's a versatile infielder, shortstop, third base, second base. But obviously there's a giant logjam now in San Diego when you talk about infielders. You've got Manny Machado over at third. You've got Xander Bogarts recently signed this offseason at shortstop. 
Jake Cronenworth at second. And oh, by the way, you also have Fernando Tatis Jr. who can play shortstop, maybe a little second. Um, and uh, you figure the Padres are going to try to use him in the outfield a little bit as well. So Kim could ultimately be the odd man out, even though he does have that versatility to his game. You look at his numbers from a season ago. He played in 150 games, had an OPS plus of 107, didn't play much second base last year, but did play it the year before. He's going to be 27 next year, and I think this would be a piece that would be interesting and fit well with what the White Sox want. It's also He's also going to provide you some solid defense as well. Um, but Kim last year, a, a 5.1 war player, it's not going to come cheap. Would you be willing to separate with maybe a Garrett Crochet or something like that? But is that even someone that a team like the the Padres would want? And there would obviously be some other pieces that would be involved in a trade like that. But there's there's a lot to, to figure because the Padres are a team that are clearly all in, win now, got to happen at this point. And the White Sox, they, they see that championship window as open and they want to be able to strike while the iron's hot. And could Hassan Kim be that guy to that is the opening day second baseman for the White Sox? Would be a lot of fun to, to see him in that White Sox lineup providing... Uh, a variety of tools, not just offensively, but defensively as well. That's going to do it for us here on White Sox Weekly. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you to everyone who tuned into White Sox Baseball, White Sox Weekly, all throughout 2022. Looking forward to doing it again with you all in 2023 right here on ESPN 1000. This is White Sox Weekly. On the home of the White Sox. ESPN 1000.